When you're smiling. Hey, you. Bubbly sparkling water is crisp, refreshing, and perfect for any occasion. Kind of like my voice, but in a can. No calories, no sweeteners, all smiles. Bubbly. Crack a smile. Hey, Hunter. Uh, it's kind of muffled a little bit. That's kind of weird. Hmm. Okay, now I can hear you good. How about this? That's perfect. Great. All righty. All right. So, hello, movie lovers. And for today's show, we actually have Hunter Ferris uh, from his little page from Twitter called Story at the Core. Say hello to everyone, Hunter. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, anytime, man. I'm glad to actually have you. We're going to be doing our review of Cabin in the Woods. But before we get into that, uh, what kind of work do you actually do? And what got you into doing movies and things like that? Okay, so I'm a full-time filmmaker. Usually I go on other people's sets, work as a PA, a grip, uh, sometimes work in the art department, or if I'm lucky, I get to be a camera operator. But I get to do that full time, and I get to make a pretty good living at it. So anybody who says that filmmaking is not a real job apparently hasn't tried hard enough. I don't know how people think filmmaking is not a real job. Anyway, <laughs> um, All right. when it comes to Twitter, I'm a student of film. I spend as much time as I possibly can learning how on earth to make movies, how movies work, and – recently I have been posting a lot of what I've learned to Twitter. I don't pretend that anything that I have on Twitter is true, but I find cool things and I post them. I say, Hey, here's something I noticed. I've never thought about it this way before, or here's another perspective, another model for understanding what an act break is or for understanding um, what exactly, what exactly ambiguity is in a movie just things that I notice, I don't pretend any of it's right. I'm not an expert. I'm just a dude who notices stuff, and I'm like, hey, here's a cool thing. But I focus right. exclusively on how to tell a good story through film. That's awesome, man. I mean, I just want to say I do like some of the stuff that you actually find, especially when it was revol evolving uh, Cabin in the Woods, because I just happened to stumble across some stuff that you actually found out and things like that from a different perspective. So I thought that was actually pretty cool. Sweet. Well, I hope that we can discuss that kind of stuff during the next oh, hour or so, however long All right. this episode's going to be. All right. So, is, yeah, it's just going to be like an hour episode, so that would be good. Um, so, anyways, this movie came out in 2011. This movie made... It only made like $66.5 with a budget of $30 million, which is not too bad but also too it didn't even break even but Josh Whedon also uh, locked himself in a room with the director and wrote this film over a course of three days which I found really fascinating they mention a lot in the DVD commentary and the bonus features that the reason they chose this movie in the first place was because they wanted something that they could write quickly and they knew that if you write for example a murder mystery you can't write that quickly but they were both so intimately familiar with horror movies that they felt like they could knock out Cabin in the Woods in a week. And, well, yeah, they definitely knocked it out. 
of the park in a week. I can definitely say they did. Most definitely. This is definitely some creativeness with Josh Whedon and, of course, with the director as well, with Drew Goodard, which he actually directed uh, The Martian. I really liked that movie. But Kevin in the Woods was a really good film whenever you look at it from paper to screen with the adaptation, what they did. I thought it was really good and clever, especially at the very beginning. It doesn't even feel like a horror movie. It feels like an office Christmas party kind of feel to it where you have two guys talking in front of a water cooler. And then next thing you know, the title flashes Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, they mentioned in the commentary, I'm sorry, I was literally just watching the commentary and then you invited me to this meeting and I was like, oh, sweet. Uh, I guess I need to stop watching the commentary. Uh, (laughs) They mentioned in the commentary that they were dead set on starting with that scene. Because every horror movie ever starts out with the kids, and they want to make absolutely sure that you understand this is not a normal horror movie. So much so that they wanted the audience to start this movie by saying, wait, did we walk into the wrong movie? In fact, if you look at the Amazon Prime plot synopsis, like if you go if you go watch this movie on Amazon Prime right now, it doesn't mention downstairs. It doesn't ma- it, do- it doesn't mention the puppet. I can't talk. It doesn't mention the puppeteers. It doesn't mention the manipulations. It just mentions the horror. They are going out of their way to make you think it's the wrong movie because they want you to understand right off the bat, this is not a normal horror movie. This is a deconstruction of horror movies. Don't expect to be scared. Expect to be expect to to be surprised expect to be outsmarted expect to have fun right and that's actually something clever that we don't see from horror movies nowadays it's more of a line of okay cheap jump scares and then also two paint by the numbers kind of horror films and not only that but we always get like the first kill scene inside the horror film and things like that and it doesn't really take itself seriously at all when you actually look at it but with this film it actually does a really good job at setting it up and knowing what it is and making the making the film fans be entertained with this movie to where they don't where they can actually expect the unexpected you know i'm yeah i'm totally on board with that i okay i really like it when a movie starts out with the premise, look, guys, we both know this is a movie. Let's just have fun with the fact that it's a movie. Let's have fun with what movies can do. It feels disarming. It feels a little bit like that moment on a first date when someone says, look, I know first dates are awkward. Can we drop all the pretenses, not try to impress each other, and just have a good time? Exactly. And that gets rid of the whole entire awkwardness of that conversation and everything and dives into a whole entire conversation. And that's actually what you get from this. It's like, okay, guys, you know what? We're a horror movie. You're here. You're stuck with us for an hour and some more minutes. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy the movie for what it is. You know? I'm sorry. I've been... I've been adding a lot of background noise here. I'm trying to silence stuff. So sorry about it's that. Okay. I hope that you it's don't okay. have to, I hope you don't have to edit out too much stuff. I'm sorry. Can no. you say that one more time? It's okay. It's like getting rid of that awkwardness of that conversation that you just mentioned, but not only get rid of that awkwardness of that conversation, but also too, is like, okay, guys, you're stuck with us for an hour and some more minutes in this film. 
This is your, our horror movie. Sit back and relax and enjoy the movie. Stuff some popcorn in your face and prepare to get entertained. Absolutely. And it's not like it's mindless entertainment. It's not like you just shut your brain off. It's just more comfortable to me personally. I don't pretend this is the correct way to do movies. I just personally like this style of movie that that starts out by getting on the same page as the audience. It always feels a little pretentious when a movie tries to pretend it's not a movie or pretend that it's not that there isn't an audience because that's what pretentious means when it comes to the etymology of the word it means that there's a pretense it means that they're pretending and i love it when a movie doesn't pretend and just says we're a movie you're an audience let's treat each other that way exactly and now we get into the first scene where you actually see chris hemsworth and we also see anna hendrick uh henderson and jesse williams and everything they're all getting ready to go on this camping trip and everything. Chris Hemsworth is excited because he might actually get laid. <laughs> and, of course, it's also part of his uncle's cabin that's in the woods that's actually away from everybody and everything. So it was a perfect time to actually be romantic with his girlfriend. Not only that, but I like how Chris Hemsworth is not like the jock kind of role because that would actually be the typical role for him, which we're going to get later on how his character all of a sudden switches over to that role. But I like how he actually is like the smart dude on the on the on this ride, you know, to the cabin. But also, too, I also like the stoner guy, though, too. But we'll talk about him in a minute. But what, what do you think? Yeah, I absolutely love the way that they introduce characters in this movie, whether it's the first scene or the first scene with the kids, where every single character in this movie is introduced through shared history. The first conversation between Dana, the Virgin, and Jules, the Horde. I'm using the titles that they're given in the movie. <laughs> the first conversation between them is about their shared history with this one professor, followed by their shared history around Dana's uh, around Dana's reluctance towards sex, followed by a shared followed by a conversation around their shared history with certain textbooks and the process you get to know everything you need to know about both dana and jules because of who they were and this movie does a great job at implying who they were without saying it and without showing it i'm glad that they didn't do that i'm glad because you know every single movie sets that up where it's like okay it's like the last day of school the last day of college they're all taking their test and everything and they show this big history of the friendship and everything without, and it's like an hour and a half before the movie even starts. The actual plot even starts. <laughs> and by then you're like, okay, we get it. You guys are friends. You have history. Let's get to the scary parts. But this one is just right down the middle of the line where it's like, okay, these are your characters. They had a history. We don't have to explain everything that happened within the origin of those characters. Just know that they have a history and let's go along with the ride. And in the process of implying shared history, you get to know who these characters are, who these characters are by how they act toward each other. The fact that Jules is so is so insecure about her hair and Dana is a little bit oblivious about the insecurity but then gets it and is happy to uh, is happy to validate Jules. That tells you a lot about who Jules is and who Dana is 
in the first couple seconds of meeting them. Exactly. And that just goes to show you the chemistry between the two of them are. You can actually feel that friendship. You can actually feel that insecurities that one of them has. And to be able to share that whole entire thing with each other. Rather than mm-hmm. having to explain it, explain anything. Absolutely. At the same time, I do wish Holden were a little more fleshed out. Mm, I do agree I with that. I didn't realize Holden was supposed to be the scholar until like until he's reading in Latin, which is probably about 30 minutes into the movie. And even then, it's kind of just a hint toward it. We don't really get who Holden is until until he's dead. Right. And that's also another thing, though, too, because I thought it would be Chris Hemsworth's character that would be reading in Latin and not uh, Holden. You know, I thought that would actually be something that Court would do rather than Holden. But once we actually see him as the scholar, it kind of, it makes sense. Yeah. And- for some reason, his performance feels like he would be the scholar, but I I feel like his performance does a better job than his character's writing deserves. Most of what his character gets by way of his writing is just, he's a decent human being who isn't going to sexually assault Dana. Right, okay, I got That's you. a low bar. <laughs> right, I got you. It's like the bottom of the totem pole. It's like, okay people that would actually do something and people that wouldn't and he would actually fit underneath that totem pole so i totally get that but hey his performance brings out a lot that isn't in the script so good job jesse williams i agree i thought that you know because you know his character was not that fleshed out but he did a good job for what he could do with what he had from the script onto the screen because i thought that was actually really good for him to be able to flesh out his character in a way that the directors didn't get a chance to do. Absolutely. There is a reason why they screened hundreds of actors for these five characters. They were looking for the people who could pull off this role perfectly. And they really got the perfect people for these roles. They definitely did. And you know what? Fan, uh, Fan Krantz is actually one of my favorite actors, especially when he played on Dollhouse, the TV series. He's the uh, stoner guy who play uh, who plays Marty. He's actually the guy who plays Marty, and I love his character because he's like one of those people that are like, I'm not going to fool into their games. I'm not going to go into the. I'm not going to play their game the way that they want me to play their game. Not only that, but he's actually a conspiracy theorist kind of. Where he's like, the truth is out there, kind of. And then also, too, I love that big old huge bong that he has that actually was a thermist. And then Chris Hemsworth goes, you cannot bring that with you. He goes, what are you talking about? Oh, who would actually bring a bong to, to your father's land? And all of a sudden, he just start, he slams the thermist down and, uh, down and everything, and it becomes a normal thermist. So I thought that was clever and very funny. I kind of love how they turned that thermos into a little bit of a Chekhov's gun, giving him a chance to just whap the guy with the thermos and mm-hmm. save the day. <laughs> that was hilarious. That was really great. Uh, that Get this, that actually cost them five grand to make. Yeah, the actor said that was the most expensive prop in the entire movie. <laughs> partly because... Just how do you, how 
that prop doesn't make sense. I don't know how you engineer that. I am not an engineer, so that's probably why. Uh, Marty is probably my favorite example ever of the trope, the cuckoo lander was right. Right. I could definitely see that. Because the... Okay. There are so, 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 so many times when a crazy guy starts rambling in a movie and it turns out that his crazy ramblings were right. That's literally the definition of the trope, the cuckoo lander was right. Right. But Marty, he seems like he's wrong. He genuinely seems like he's wrong because he's not giving world building. He's not giving lore. He's not giving exposition. He's giving themes and tone. And that's what he can be right about. He can be right about what the movie's trying to say. He can be Joss Whedon, either Joss Whedon or Drew Goddard, can't remember which, described him as the moral backbone of the movie. He can't know what's actually going on, but he can know what you should think about what's going on. Things like uh, things like how society needs to crumble, or literally his next line after his society needs to crumble rant is, you will come to see things my way. And the second time I'm watching this, I'm like, whoa, the entire movie, we are supposed to see things his way. Exactly. And you know what? I had him at surviving this uh, the first time that I saw this movie, which was back in 2011. I had him marked on my paper surviving in the whole movie because of the fact that he's, his vision is so clear on everything, while other all the others are thinking he's just the kook stoner who doesn't know what he's talking about when he really in all rationality is he knows what he's talking about which makes me wonder and i know that this is complete fan fiction and complete fan theory it might be that part of the reason why the ritual didn't work and obviously the real reason the ritual didn't work is because marty wasn't actually dead that's another but it might uh, be that part of the reason why the ritual didn't work is because they didn't get a fool. They got someone who's smarter than everybody else. That's true. What if uh, the sacrifice was really for Marty and not for somebody else? So that's also a key thing here, too. That's actually a good idea that I never thought of, to be honest with you. Oh, I hadn't thought of it either. I just noticed they called him the fool, and I'm like, what do you right. mean the fool? He's not a fool. He's the <laughs> only person in the movie who has any idea what's going on. Exactly. He's like, and you know what else I like? I like the two-way mirror in the bedroom, where it's kind of like in a police investigation kind of mirror, where you know the other person can see you, but the other person can't. I love that two-way mirror that they had. And then also, too, as soon as we get into the thing where Chris Hemsworth and them are just swimming and then Marty's just going on a tangent about society and things like that, and he, he doesn't even join them at all. He just goes on ahead, soaks his feet on the dock, and that's it. He doesn't even participate in the swimming. Okay, on the topic of the two-way mirror, can I, ram- can I ramble for a few minutes? Yes, go ahead. Sweet. One of my favorite tropes, one of, is called You Bastard. It's where the movie insults the audience for enjoying the movie they're watching right now. The clearest and most representative example I've ever seen, or at least heard of, I haven't actually seen this movie, is in the 2006 horror movie Funny Games, where they, where the villain is torturing uh, an innocent family, 
and he turns to the camera, literally turns to the camera and asks the audience, so this is what you pay money to watch? This is what entertains you? You're sick. I love that trope. Because it, it's a great way to, one, say, look, we know it's a movie, we know you're an audience, let's just have fun with this. But two, to take that a step further and actually do something with that level of comfort. It's not just, it's not just disarming and saying, hey, let's, let's relax and have a good time. It's also, okay, now that we're relaxed, now that we're having a good time, let's talk about some really interesting things. Which in this case is, what do you enjoy and why? And this movie is a great example of You Bastard. We start out, one of the earliest scenes in the movie is a scene with that two-way mirror. That two-way mirror is a literal fourth wall. Oh, I didn't think about that. Holden is an audience watching Dana taking her top off. Holden is not comfortable watching Dana take the top off. The camera keeps watching. The actual audience keeps watching. And then the actual audience has to think, why are we not okay with Holden watching? But we are okay with us watching. What gives us the right? Now, for me, the answer is consent. Kristen Connolly consented to have that shown on screen. But it definitely does give you at least a little bit of a thought of why is this okay to watch? Later on, we get the scene with uh, Kurt and Jules having foreplay and they're about to have sex in the woods and we get an audience surrogate in that there is an actual audience watching the scene of all of the guys who work downstairs watching through the hidden cameras and they're all really excited to see the scene and when they can't get to watch the rest of the scene their boss says your basic human needs disgust me I remember that. And, you know, that just goes to show you that, you know, there is a live audience that is all over the world watching this, which is okay for them, which would be like us. It's okay for us to watch that because that person actually gave consent. But at the same time, that person didn't actually give consent for people all over the world to actually watch, watch her from a perspective of a reality show. That's about where she's about to actually get, get ended. And this is where the level of you bastard gets really interesting because, yes, there's consent, but it still insults us. It still says mm -hmm. you shouldn't enjoy this to the point that in the end, the audience is the villain of the movie. A character named the director walks out and gives an info dump to the main characters about how they're trying to satisfy the demands of these great eternal ones who have existed long before the world of the movie who have very specific criteria for what they want and if they don't get it they get angry we are the ancient ones oh wow that's an interesting twist that i never thought of before whenever i I'm was not viewing this I'm not the only one to think this. This was I was watching a video last night on a bunch of Easter eggs in Cabin in the Woods. If you want, I can send you a link so you can put it okay. in the show notes. But the point is um, they, they got near the end to who are the ancient ones? We are. We are the ones who pay good money 
to go watch a horror movie where we have very specific expectations. And if we don't get our expectations met, we get angry. For that matter, we've existed long before the world of the movie, and we are much bigger than the movie. And in the end, the audience becomes not only the villain, but becomes literally demonized. They represent the audience through a demon. Like, this is the best and most fun example I've ever seen of you bastard. And this is not just my fan theory. Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard said part of the reason they wanted to make this movie in the first place is because they saw that horror movies were moving too far toward mm -hmm. torture porn, and they wanted to criticize torture porn. That's true, because if you actually look at uh, the Saw movies at that time, people were saying, oh, that's just torture porn. On on so many levels, on some of the people that are, were against uh, the Saw franchise. They said, oh, it just feels like torture porn. Even uh, Fair.com actually felt like a torture porn type of movie. And Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard weren't really a fan of the of how horror was swinging toward torture porn, and so they wanted to say, guys, we veered too far. Which is why the movie is explicit in its torture and in its porn. There's a reason why we have a scene that shows a character's breasts explicitly. There's a reason why we get whatever that thing is that Papa Buckner swings around. I think it's a bear trap. Yeah. It's pretty explicit in how it does that. When Dana's smashing a crowbar into a zombie, it's pretty explicit. It definitely because, is explicit. Mm. Yeah. Because it needs to – because if you're going to say, audience, you shouldn't enjoy this, you need to show this clearly. And then the shock factor on it, though, when they show it to us. Because we're just as shocked as the characters are and everything, too, which is even a lot scarier than it actually is because we actually do feel like we're involved. We actually feel like – that we are in those woods with those characters. And we're just as shocked as Jules is when she gets her head decapitated from, from them. Yeah. Yeah. Which leaves me wondering. So the ending of the movie is that one of the characters says that if sacrificing the characters is what's necessary to appease the ancient ones, the audience, and if torture porn is what the audience needs, then throw away the whole movie. Let's start fresh. What do you think they were trying to say with that by having the movie end with the movie getting destroyed? You see, I thought of it as a different direction with that, and I didn't think of that. And what I thought was, okay, they're trying to cover up all the evidence that was that happened in this in the woods and everything, so the way it doesn't look like anything happened. So the way they can go on ahead and maybe another company actually takes over where that other company left, leaves off at. Whoa. I'm sorry. I just assumed because the director seemed pretty explicit about it, but maybe I was just misunderstanding or maybe I was just being too sure of my own understanding. I kind of just assumed that the movie ended with the ancient one destroying the world or at least mm. starting to destroy the world. That's that's but, another way of thinking of it. That's a deep thought on that. I mean, it seems 
the movie's kind of foreshadowing to that for the entire movie. Eight minutes in, Marty starts ranting about how society needs to crumble and says, you will see things my way. The last scene in the movie is society crumbles because Marty made a decision. Uh, Truman, the black guy who's uh, always watching the the office managers, uh, Hadley and Citizen, that was their names. Mm-hmm. He is consistently, like, on almost every scene he's in, questioning and doubting the ethics of the situation. He exists to say, you bastard. Almost every single scene he's in, he turns to one of the characters and says, why is this okay? He might as well be turning to the audience and saying, why are you okay watching this? Right. What is wrong with you? (laughs) And in the end of the movie, Truman and Marty were right. This is not okay. And this system needs to fall. It's not a situation where Marty rises to become an ancient one and gets to change the system from the inside. No, he just rebels against it so hard that they have to shut down the system from the inside. Right. And it has to be rigged to where they can kill Marty. Because at that point, remember, okay, I do want to get into this other part where with the gas with Chris Hemsworth. Because one minute he's actually thinking logical. He goes, all of us need to stick together so that we we can actually beat this thing. And then all of a sudden, that gas comes out of the vent. And then he goes, we need to split up. And then Marty's just like, really? That's what you thought? What is wrong with you? Honestly, go ahead, go ahead. And that, what if that was actually a key moment? Is like, what's wrong? Questioning our own insecurities and go what is wrong with you for watching us in this kind of context i definitely hadn't thought of that scene as a you bastard scene i kind of just i love how this movie deconstructs horror movies i don't think of it as a parody or a satire Mm, on horror horror movies i think it's a deconstruction i think it goes Mm. out of its way to explain rather than uh rather than make fun of also criticize but definitely explain Definitely. And I don't even feel like this is actually a parody film at all. It just feels like Marty is like the smart guy in this whole entire thing. It's like, we need a group. We need to actually stick together. And, and he, then he also knows that they're being puppeteers in this whole entire thing, though, too. He's like, no, I'm just not going to do it. I don't care what you're going to do. I'm not going to be a puppeteer. I'm not going to do it. You guys could be puppeteers, but I'm not going to be puppeteers. Then they realize the people in the downstairs are thinking, okay, so you're not going to cooperate with us. So therefore, we're going to make you move since you're not moving on your own, at your own pace. And uh, this is part of why Marty doesn't really seem like he's the fool. He seems like he's the genre-savvy nerd. Mm -hmm. A little bit like Randy on Scream or Duncan from The Final Girls. I can see that. I can definitely see that. But the weird thing is this movie never explicitly names another horror movie. And I just realized why, because in their universe, horror movies don't exist. Hmm, They're all an interesting thought. Okay. Marty can't watch the ring because the ring actually happened in Japan in their universe. That's true. We did see that because with the Japan and you know what? I actually love that whole entire concept where, you know, they're all betting. The people in the downstairs are all betting and everything, make, seeing if we're actually going to be smart enough to actually 
beat these monsters and take those monsters down, or if another country is going to take over and be smarter than us. Yeah, this movie goes out of its way to show that there's more to the world than we actually see in the movie, which makes me wonder, what other stories would you want to tell in this world? Would you want to see the story of the new corporate group trying to set up a way to appease the ancient ones? Would you want to see how this group went from occult to corporate? Would you say... Dude, no, the universe gets destroyed, and this is the most important story they could tell of their universe. Why would we see anything else? Right, especially whenever it's destroying their own film and everything like you said. You know? Because that wouldn't make sense for them to go ahead and make another film if they're already destroying this film that we are watching. Am I right? Yeah, I... There was a rumor that there would be a sequel... Drew Goddard was explicit that there would not be a sequel because, and the way he phrased it was, it would ruin the ending of the first one. The world got destroyed. Why would you make something that happens after the world gets destroyed? But that doesn't mean there can't be something else in this universe. What right. else would you want to see in this universe? Well, here's the thing. Just because we, this is my thing. Everybody's like, well, they shot themselves in the foot because of the fact that they could have made a sequel to this film. I said, okay, we only saw one world. We only saw one organization. Just because we saw that one that one organization does not mean that there's uh, several other organizations that's going to be ten times worse than that organization. There could be another orga- organization somewhere else doing the same things that they're doing. Absolutely. The question is just, well, is it worth watching that organization? Like, what makes that organization interesting enough and gives it a clear enough narrative, gives it a compelling enough story that it's worth making a movie about that? I agree with you on that because it's like the motivation, right? You actually need to have the plot motivation. Not only that, but you also have to have the core audience, though, to be- make them feel entertained to where they actually do feel that ba- you bastard kind of feel to it again. And to make them actually feel a part of those ca- other characters now, because they killed off all the other characters from the first film. So it's like, OK, so how do we engage in the audience with something else? Yeah, I I literally do not know what else to do. My brother did suggest uh, have a movie set in the seventies around when Dawn of the Dead and what was it called? when Dawn of the Dead and Halloween were coming out, where this corporate business guy goes to the occult group that's been sacrificing virgins for the last two thousand years and says, "Look, guys, you're going about this in way too creepy of a way. Can we modernize this a bit and tries to turn it from occult to corporate? That could be interesting. I don't know." I don't know what there is. I don't know what else there is for this movie to say because I think this movie, I personally think the purpose of this movie is to say, you bastard. You Mm. should not watch torture porn. It's bad. You should enjoy, you should not enjoy it. Now, I think, I think that's what the movie's trying to say. That's not what I'm trying to say, but I think that's what the movie's trying to say. And I think it, did that well enough that I wouldn't want any more material just saying the same thing. I think anything else in this universe would have to pick a different theme 
Right. It would actually have to pick a different theme and be a small entity. Go on. Maybe something like, I don't know, Leslie Vernon or something like that. Sorry, sorry. I'm getting totally off topic. You said there was another scene that you really wanted to talk about. Uh, yeah, there's also the controlling of the weather, which has like a Truman Show kind of vibe to it, where they're actually controlling the environment, which is actually another thing going back to Marty being puppeteers and about how they're actually interacting within that environment. Just like how all of a sudden the trap door inside the living room just pops open and the encroach sensor goes, oh, it must have been the wind. And then Marty goes, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I'm like, okay, now you see a little bit of Chris Hemsworth's jock side come out a little bit, where he's like, it must have been the wind. (laughs) Because remember, he's actually supposed to be the smart guy in this. This is about where I left off in the commentary just before I started (laughs) doing this podcast. (laughs) Um, Right before this, uh, they have the conversation around truth or dare. Dana picks... Uh, sorry, Jules offers Dana truth or dare. Chris Hemsworth says truth because Dana's going to pick dare. Jules is going to say something that Dana doesn't want to do. And Jules, and Dana's going to say, well, I wanted truth all along. And Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard were saying that they love how, I mean, this is to them, the first scene of Chris Hemsworth's character being a dumb, mean jock. Mm-hmm. And it's... And so they kind of have to reintroduce his character, and so they reintroduce his character through shared history. They reintroduce him by saying, I know you. And he's right. I I liked how they reintroduced him in that kind of context and everything, but if they didn't do that, I felt like, you know, maybe they're like, okay, what, what are they trying to do here? Are they changing things up without making us, you know, making us feel stupid? What's going on here? But they use the context in the right places. They know how to actually grab us and everything. And we actually know the transformation of Chris Hemsworth from point A to point B without any other context behind it. And I love it. Same. They do a great job at showing how these characters are puppeteered. I love that. I don't have much to say about it. I just love it. And then also, too, when they go downstairs, though, too, then we actually see a little bit of, you know, of Jesse Williams' character, Holden, all of a sudden starting to uh, starting to do the whole entire Latin, talking in Latin. And, of course, you also have, too, you also have uh, Marty, who ends up saying, do not do not do that. Do not read that book. And then, and then you actually hear the whispers. Read the book. It kind of actually has that little feel of the Evil Dead at that point. Yeah. Um, when you do a movie called Cabin in the Woods, you have two options, three options. You have do the Evil Dead. Just lead as heavy as you can mm-hmm. into the Evil Dead, which is the one they chose. You have do Friday the Thirteenth. Or you have do neither and spin off into a completely different direction without referencing either the Evil Dead or Friday the 13th. I personally would have rather they taken the Friday the 13th direction, but that's just because I'm researching slasher movies right now. Okay. So that's kind of just a selfish reason, but 
I'm a little disappointed that they chose the Buckners to be perfectly honest, and I kind of love that the people in that the people downstairs are also disappointed that they chose the Buckners. <laughs> it's almost like the movie saying, "Hey, audience, we know this is disappointing. Trust us. Hang on. There's going to be something really cool in Act Three, right? And then also too, the maintenance department is the one who voted on the Buckners." and everything which makes it even all that more funny though it's like you know it's like we actually went on we bought our ticket to the movie to the movie right and we actually are the ones who actually are putting our money into this cup and trying to bet on what monster is actually what they're going to be using and then it's like okay i didn't vote for the buckners so i'm going to be just as disappointed as the people that are actually working in the downstairs i love that meta-textual analysis of it. The idea that we are also the ones betting on what's going to come up. Because if I remember correctly, the IMDb plot synopsis and the Amazon Prime plot synopsis do not say what they're terrorized by. If I remember correctly. I might not be, be remembering no. correctly. No, they don't even mention that in the synopsis or anything like that. So you, know? you go in wondering, okay, what are they being terrorized by? Are they going to be terrorized by... Um, a standard slasher by a wolfman, by a merman, by zombies, by uh, zombified, pain-worshipping, torture zombies. Please not that. But <laughs> moving on, maybe they'll be, maybe they'll be terrorized by Kevin. <laughs> right? And then also no, really, Kevin is one of the things on the board that people can can bet on. <laughs> you know what? I would actually bet on Kevin just to see what would happen. <laughs> That's. <laughs> There's a companion but... tie-in novel where they explain that Kevin is a is a normal-looking guy <laughs> who seems like he would work in customer service at your local retail outlet. I'm not quoting it word for word. So basically, Until he oh. goes home into a homicidal maniac. He's kind of Patrick Bateman. Okay, that makes sense. Sorry, because... you were saying no because I can actually picture Kevin as like a Geek Squad kind of guy with a tie. Yes. And a white shirt and black pants, and he's out there in the cabin in the woods with them. He's like, "Hey guys, I'm right here. I can help you escape." And it's like, "Okay, where does this guy come from?" I could actually see it from that line, you know. And then he's just completely different, like a sheep in wolf's clothing. That sounds amazing. I want to see this. Oh, right, that's called Friday the Thirteenth Part One. Right. <laughs> that's who Pamela Voorhees is in Friday the Thirteenth right. Part One. For about five minutes. I haven't seen Friday the 13th Part 1. I need to go see Friday the 13th Part 1. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting distracted again. <laughs> it's okay. I actually did a review for Friday the 13th Part 1. So, um, Oh, perfect. So yeah. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. That's actually such a classic slasher film. But, you know, like you said, they could actually went into the whole slasher thing as well. But you know how you said and you mentioned the torture porn thing? And they get zombies that are like torture porn quite literally they are described as pain worshipping zombies right so that's also another tip of the hat to the audience and saying that you shouldn't be watching torture porn by getting zombies that are actually indeed part of torture porn it's it's a brilliant move on a metatextual level to have the villains be torture porn be torture be for that matter torture porn enthusiasts 
the villains of the movie are the kind of people who love Saw, The Collector, and The Farm. Huh. Okay. okay one of the many villains. Everybody in this movie is a villain. Everybody. Yep. Including I the main characters. They are villains. That is true. That is very because true. there are two separate groups of main characters who are each looking for exactly opposing ideals and exactly opposing goals, a little bit like, I don't know, a Pixar movie. I hate to make that comparison, but like Woody and Buzz have completely different goals in the first Toy Story, and they keep clashing heads and they keep getting in each other's way. Same thing's happening here. The kids and the downstairs people have completely opposing goals. Neither one of them can win. Mm, I could see that now. I can actually see that. Which you know, means that in one sense, the kids are the villains. And Sitterson and Hadley are the villains. Everybody in this movie is a villain to some degree. Hmm, I didn't think of it from that aspect. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it from that angle and everything. Because I never, I never viewed the film as in that context before. So that's actually an inter- interesting view. Um, yeah, I just came up with that just now. <laughs> but that's I have notes good. that was not in the notes. Hey, it's okay. It's okay to go with improv sometimes. It's all good. Um, but another thing, though, too, was the um, part where they're driving, getting the RV, and they're driving through, right? And then all of a sudden, they're like, the people in the downstairs are like, okay, they're leaving. We have to do something. And so they end up uh, destroying the K the tunnel, and then they actually had to drive back out of the tunnel. And all of a sudden, there's this whole entire thing where they actually have to jump the um, the cliff, where Chris Hemsworth gets on the dirt bike, and then we saw what happens to him. And I, you know what though, I actually have to laugh because he looks like he was so energetic so ready to go and then all of a sudden he jumps off the cliff and you think he's gonna make and this force field stops him this scene is really weird on a metatextual level okay i have a friend who's a professional director and he once told me that movies are essentially not a com- not a conflict between character and character. Movies are a conflict between character and writer. I can the see that. The character wants something badly, and the writer wants to make sure the character doesn't get it. And it's the writer's job to make it as physically difficult on that character to get it as possible. Take Back to the Future Part 1, for example. The entire movie is making it as hard as physically possible for Marty to get back to the future until eventually the character is so strong-willed and so effective and so good that the writer has to give up and the character wins. Not because the writer is bad, but because the character is just that much better than the writer. And this is a scene where the characters are fighting against the quote-unquote filmmakers. The characters have enough agency and enough ability to make their own choices that the filmmakers have to work around the characters and say, wait, 
but they're doing this thing that we didn't expect. We have to stop them. We have to make this more difficult on them. That's actually true. I didn't think of it like that because I do write a, some screenplays and stuff like that. I'm coming, trying to come up with ideas. And that struggle between writer and character is so complex, right? Because you're trying to make sure the character fits in the right place and also make the character do what it wants to do. But the character wants to do something totally different than what you have written down on the paper. By the way, this is the actual plot line of the Gwenpool okay. comics. If you ever read if you ever read any of Gwenpool's comics, the actual story is Gwen wants a thing badly and the writers are determined to keep her from getting it. And so she keeps outsmarting the writers and keeps <laughs> just being so good at her job that the writers can't stop her from getting it until eventually the writers are like, "Nope. Sorry." You lose. We're playing a trump card. We are ending the story right here. Okay. I th- it, As a matter of fact, it also reminds you of Deadpool kills the universe, kills the Marvel universe, though, too, with a certain spin on that. Never thought about it that way. Huh. So, yeah, like, if, if you want to see what I'm talking about with the whole writer-character writer conflict, go read the Gwenpool comics, and it'll be okay. extremely clear about that. Apparently, go read Deadpool Kills the Marvel Universe, and it'll be extremely clear about that. Sorry, I got on a rant again. Uh, I just okay. really like Gwenpool. It's okay. I'm a big comic book sweaty, so you're fine. I, lo- I love comic books. So you going, really? off, going off on that, I'm definitely going to have to check that out because I love Deadpool. I love Batman and all that stuff, so I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Sweet. So, all right. So, yes, there is a scene of the characters genuinely fighting the guys downstairs to get home, and the guys downstairs win in this scene. That's true. They actually do win because of the fact that every character dies. In this Literally. Film. Yep. Every character. Um, Joss Whedon described it <laughs> in one of the bonus features. Joss Whedon says, I'm known for killing off beloved characters, and this is kind of my magnum opus because everyone in this movie dies. No, really, the entire world dies at the end of the movie. So everyone dies. Even the film dies, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. So not only do you kill everybody else but you also kill the soul of what we're actually watching which is the movie i have a philosophy that the universe is born when the movie begins and the and the universe ends when the credits roll this movie is extremely clear that the universe ends when the credits roll i can definitely see that point and you know what? I actually have an appreciation for the ending now that you actually put it in that context with the film being destroyed rather than just it being the cabin being destroyed. Because I felt like, I always felt like the ending was rushed and everything. But now that I actually understood it from your perspective, in a sense, I feel like that it was actually perfectly well done now that I'm actually looking at it from that angle. I mean, even even if you take away the meta text and just say, well, Marty's right. If you have to... Okay, Marty has a point. He's not necessarily right, but he has a point. 
that if you have to sacrifice people to the ancient ones to get humanity to survive, there is a case to be made for not letting humanity survive. And they spend the entire movie building up that case. Hmm. That's actually things like Marty's uh Marty's rant about society needing to crumble, Truman consistently doubting the ethics of the situation. Um characters keep talking about how if this doesn't work, this is what happens. They keep explaining the stakes to you, which feels like showing how important it is for them to win, but it's also showing that it's kind of okay for them to lose in this situation. Right, because they're at a situation where the environment that they're in, it's not a safe environment. The environment's actually being being controlled, and there's nothing they can do about it. So it's either die or die trying to survive, which they die trying to survive. I love that description of it. Die or die trying. <laughs> that should be the new Cabin in the Woods uh, sequel. Die or die. <laughs> Cabin Gosh, in the Woods. You have no idea. They kept they kept talking about all these different. They kept joking about all these different names for the movie. Really? Like, what were some of the de- names? Oh gosh, it was mostly in the WonderCon Q and A bonus feature. Um, right. Uh, the The conversation got started because during one of the test screenings, some of the feed one person one person gave the feedback. Clearly, this movie should not be called Cabin in the Woods. Clearly, it should be called You Never Know. <laughs> Drew Goddard replied, really? Clearly? That's the word you used to say that? I'm so glad that the producers did not agree that that was clearly. Me too. I'm, to me, the cabin in the woods is more settled, and I love whenever they actually do like a one-room setting for movies, and it makes it even more scarier and adds in the suspense flavor to the movie. Because I love whenever they do one-off settings like that. And Cabin in the Woods is such an easy and simpler uh, name that you can actually put on something. And you actually have to use your imagination to know what this is actually about. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. It's the curiosity behind the posters. Honestly, great poster. Definitely Definitely catches my curiosity. Back in 2011, I was like 14. I was not going to be watching any any R-rated horror movies anytime soon. I was walking through a used bookstore and saw a copy of Cabin in the Woods, and I was like, that looks cool because of the weird cube-shaped cabin and the lettering and the colors. And I'm like, that's cool. I kind of want to watch that someday. Thank you so much for giving me an excuse to watch it. You're welcome. <laughs> because this is actually one of my movie movies that I've watched maybe once or maybe twice and didn't think of it in a certain perspective before until now so i appreciate the context behind what you were actually explaining and i actually understand what you're saying we actually went deep into this thing than what i thought we would actually go into so i want to thank you for that because now i actually have a different perspective so which means i can actually give a different perspective to my friends that might actually feel disappointed like I was with the ending of the film and come out like, okay, that actually makes sense now. Or you might actually have them say, no, they destroyed it. They they could have actually went on ahead and made another film out of it and things like that. So I do appreciate 
your perspective on it and give me some new insight into it from your perspective. Thanks. I honestly, I don't want a sequel to this movie. Partly because the the universe gets destroyed. Ancient horrors from eldritch abominations straight out of Lovecraft's imagination rise up and destroy the entire world. I'm sorry. What on earth made people think there would be a sequel to that? This is the most that they can possibly do to say there is no sequel. Let's blow up a pl- let's blow up the entire planet, and people are like, "Oh, there's going to be a sequel." Sorry, I'm making fun of people. Uh, sorry. <laughs> anyway, but man, but this also is... because this is the best story they could have told about it—the story of how. This corrupt organization loses loses forever, and it doesn't need a sequel. But if they came out with like a really good idea for a sequel, yeah, sure, I will never there. turn down a good movie. Same here as well. If they actually put a lot of thought into it, like they did with this, I'm game for a sequel for Cabin in the Woods. But right now, I'm I'm perfectly fine for what it where it's at and everything. And also too, they destroy the whole freaking cabin, so. Basically, you would actually have to put this in another setting and call it something else. And how would you actually put a sequel to this movie on a poster when you already have a cabin that got destroyed? It was called Cabin in the Woods. What are you going to do? Call it the woods? The other cabin in the (laughs) The woods. I'm sorry, that's a stupid name for it. Right. It sounds like something back in the 90s. <laughs> it's like, oh, you heard about the cabin. I'm the other cabin now. <laughs> it sounds like something in the 30s where they're like, son of Frankenstein, bride of Frankenstein. Frankenstein returns. Or the son of Frankenstein, which they yeah. have. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it, it, sounds, it sounds like that. It does. This is and... why I come up with terrible titles for movies. When I make movies, they have terrible titles. <laughs> because you don't know what they are, right? It's like, okay, I don't know what to call it, so what am I going to call it? So you can just call it anything up until you decide on the final draft and say, okay, this is what the title is going to be. No, it's just because I suck at titles. Oh, okay. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the filmmaking process. See, I was actually it's just trying to me. help you out. <laughs> I was trying to make it. Aww, thank <laughs> you're, you. You're, you're welcome. Because I actually have a problem with coming up with titles for myself, though, too. Because I'm actually writing a screenplay right now. So I actually know that struggle <laughs> of coming up with titles. One time I actually called the screenplay untitled to my uh, screenplay. <laughs> okay, on that topic. Deadpool 2 was originally titled, and this was not because of a lack of title. This was the actual title, Untitled Deadpool Sequel. And I really wish they just stuck with that title because I really wanted to go to the theater and say, hey, I'd like two tickets for Untitled Deadpool sequel. Right. And knowing that, but I could also see Ryan Reynolds playing off of that. Hey, our studio was so fucking bored to death with making a screenplay for me that they didn't even have a time to even come up with a title. So guess what? It's just going to be Untitled Deadpool. So enjoy this Untitled Deadpool movie. Okay, one of these days I'm going to make a movie that's actually called Untitled. <laughs> that's brilliant. I, I would actually pay tickets to go see that. I don't know what it would be about yet, but it has to happen. 
that would be perfect. But, dude, this has been a blast. I mean, this has been a really good uh, show and everything. And I just want to say thank you for coming on the show and taking time out with me and our my listeners, though, too, uh, listening to this review. This is actually part of our 31 Days of Horror uh, movie review that we've been doing since uh, Saturday. So we've been doing this for a while. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. Um, honestly, dude, thank you so much for letting me come on the show. I have a lot of thoughts about this movie. Didn't get into all the thoughts about this movie, but I'm just, I'm grateful to get to spend more time than 280 characters. Usually I only get to talk about a movie on Twitter. So I'm glad to get to spend an hour talking about a movie. You're welcome. And I do appreciate you responding to my tweet because I'm like, I want to interact with somebody this year because I had several people that was on the show all last week, just interacting, talking about horror movies and stuff like that. And I did, I've been doing this podcast for a year and I actually did a whole 31 days of horror by myself. And it felt like I was talking to myself. So it's like, I can do this show by myself, but I want to actually have someone there to actually interact with this year. So I do appreciate you reaching out to me and wanting to be on the show. Thanks so much. You're welcome. And where can all the kiddos find you? <laughs> so you can find my thoughts about movies that I watch on Twitter at story at the core and you, sorry, at story at the core, or you can find the movies that I make on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Yes. TikTok, Vimeo or YouTube at Bueller Studios. Bueller like Ferris Bueller. That makes sense because of your last name. That's actually clever. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. And everybody, you can actually reach me at Movie Lovers TV Lovers Unite on Facebook. You can also find me on Instagram at Movie Lovers TV Lovers Unite over there. You can find me on Twitter on, uh, at Movie Lovers Unit. And then, of course, guys, we actually have a webpage now that you guys can actually follow to get your entertainment news and everything there's not much entertainment news coming out of the woodwork right now other than this person's recovering from coronavirus this person has coronavirus so it's kind of on a standstill a little bit but you guys can actually follow me on there and me and tamika actually go on ahead and we type out our articles and report on movie news she does her movie reviews on there too which is beautiful another thing too guys we actually have a place that you can actually donate to us if you guys actually want to donate to us just to keep the lights on at Movie Loves Unite. And, of course, I want to do digital giveaways. So what better way to do that if you guys go on ahead and donate a couple of bucks to us at buymeacoffee.com slash movielovers. And you guys can donate five, ten bucks. I understand that if you guys can't because it's actually a critical time for us with the coronavirus, which I totally understand. And then we also have a another thing, too, where you guys can actually support us with Anchor, with signing up for like a 99 cent plan, if you guys want to do that. You guys don't have to. But anyways, if you guys have any questions about this podcast, go on ahead, send us a voicemail message. We'll be able to do that. And of course, you can reach us also with VIA uh, email at movieloversunite at gmail.com. And of course, man, thank you again. I do appreciate it. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. And of course, everyone, until, always until next time, stay safe and have a great night. Bye-bye.